Rabbi Ami Hirsch of the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue in New York, and you're listening to In These Times. Today's podcast is a special one. I recorded this episode live in front of a studio audience in our sanctuary. Joining me was a returning guest, Dr. Anat Wilf, former member of Israel's Knesset, who served as an intelligence officer in the IDF before earning her PhD in political science from Cambridge. And also joining me was my good friend David Chazoni, an accomplished writer and the editor of my book, The Lilac Tree, as well as the new book, Jewish Priorities, to which Anat and I were honored to contribute. Originally, we were going to talk about that, Jewish Priorities, a book containing 65 essays of some of the Jewish world's most provocative thinkers on what should be our Jewish priorities in the decades to come. But then war broke out in Israel, and it became apparent that this conversation about our future, about committing and recommitting to the Jewish people, was more important than ever. David, I want to ask you first, you're a writer, you're a journalist, you're an essayist, you're a man of words. Can you put into words and help us understand what you're feeling now? Um, I'm a little short on words about what I'm feeling now. I spent the first two weeks of the war in Israel. I live in Jerusalem. And then really getting on the plane was probably the hardest thing I've done in my life or one of the hardest things because you never want to leave your family behind and go off while you're in the middle of this kind of a situation. We heard the sirens the morning of October 7th in Jerusalem, which is rare. In Jerusalem, sirens are a rare thing. It really hadn't had barely happened at all in the last decade that we had to take cover. But we went on with our day. We had plans to drive up to Haifa to see my in-laws, and we packed up, and we saw a lot of police roadblocks on the way. Um, And then we started to hear more and more news reports. By 11.47 a.m., I sent out a tweet that said, it's too early to know anything in terms of what's really going on, but already I can tell you This is an unthinkable horror and a war that will not end quickly. Something paradigm-shifting has happened. That was four hours in. By the next day, it was clear that, well, first thing I knew is that in addition to the two kids I already had in the IDF, I had three more that had been called up, which means that even if I'm not there, at least I'm doing my part through my children. You may feel free to disagree with me on the description I'm about to give because every Israeli experiences the trauma differently. Um, What I think we all have in common is that this is not a case of some of us know people who were affected, whose family was affected. This is more of a case of that every single Israeli has three or four different lines of one degree of separation, where in my case, my son's best friend was murdered, and my first cousin's ex-girlfriend of 14 years was abducted, and my wife's second cousin's broader family had two murders and an abduction, and my own son lives with my grandson and his wife in a community in the Gaza envelope that we kept looking for news reports about Kfar Maimon and didn't see anything and somehow that community was broadly spared. And um, so it touches every one of us multiple directions powerfully. 
Um, so yeah, we're all in, in shock for days. The first three days were days of more than shock, days of acute fear because the terrorists were still among us. Um, the schools were shut down, everything shut down. And it, it was really a feeling of they could be anywhere, they could have driven up the highway, they could reach Tel Aviv, they could reach who knows where they had gone. You know, we kept reading the reports and they said there's still battles happening in this town and in this town, in this place. It was only after that was done, and it took, I think, about three days, uh, that Israelis, to a very large degree, shifted from utter terror to war mode. And war is something that, that we know. At the same time, we were also starting to get all the horrible, really terrible stories. We're simultaneously mobilizing both militarily with huge part of the population called up and also on a civilian level with everybody helping everybody in every way they can figure out. All the politics of the past year was suddenly shelved, not erased, but put to the side for now. The huge questions of who's to blame, how could this possibly happen, also put to the side for now. And a sense of complete and total mobilization. I personally got on the plane because this, my, you know, I had this book launch. <laughs> and it's going to sound really petty, but when you're in the middle of horror and trauma, it's the pragmatic things that allow you to focus and to escape the bigger things. So the questions of, okay, the school's closed, how do we deal with the, the kids at home, how do we do this, how do we do that, are the best, the most available way to deal. And for me, that included the fact that I had, you know, eight major events in the United States scheduled for a book, and it's every author's, you know, nightmare that your book's going to come out exactly at the moment of world-turning turbulence. And I assumed that, that it was all off, and then I started to speak to the event venues in Philadelphia at the Weizmann Museum and here and at the Stryker Center in Palo Alto at the Z3 conference and every single one of them said, we need this event, we want this event. The idea of Jews coming together to talk about our future is actually very, very intensely important right now. I started to understand what American Jewry was going through from my own separate kind of bubble of trauma and that's why I'm here. Anand, let me ask you, uh, how are you feeling? And in particular, you know, Israel was created to prevent precisely these kind of pogroms. Do you feel personally and do you feel that Israeli society's confidence in not only the security but the integrity of Israeli society and the Zionist ethos, do you feel that's been damaged in some way? Uh, and if so, it, can, is it repairable? So the answer to both is yes. And it also has to do with my feelings. Um, I oscillate between dark days of despair. When you begin to think about it, and I think all of us in Israel, and I think Jews as well around the world, uh, we feel that we're holding by the fingernails not to fall into the abyss. And in those dark days, uh, then yes, everything gets questioned because when you begin to imagine and to think what happened and the magnitude, and if, if this happens on sovereign Israeli territory, then yes, everything gets questioned. And 
uh, one of my favorite authors in the world in the book is uh, The um, World of Yesterday by Stefan Zweig. And in my days of despair, he's my companion. And then I have days of resolve, which is we'll get through this and we'll build Israel stronger and better. And on those days, another Viennese Jew is my companion, Herzl. And I'm thinking, yes, we have it within us. And there's a lot of encouraging signs in Israeli society and the mobilization. But um, I oscillate. It, I can't say that there's a direction like every day is better or something. Like some days are good and I have that sense of resolve. Today is a good day. Uh, but the day I arrived here, I had a very dark day because the flight with El Al was completely empty. And I spoke to the staff and they were like, yes, after the first two weeks where it was insane and all the foreigners were getting out of Israel and so many Israelis were coming to Israel, they said, now it's nothing. And I've never seen an empty El Al flight. I don't know if you have, but that was a new thing. And it, was, it just felt sad and dark. And then I landed in New York. And New York is New York, just keeping going about being New York. But suddenly, I've never understood the phrase between the world and me, but suddenly I actually felt it, the sense of like that there's something, a kind of veil of sadness. You're a political scientist. Maybe you don't want to talk about it now because, as David said, all of these uh, questions are being deferred until after the war is won, and it will be won. But do, do you want to share with us some preliminary thoughts about how was Israel so taken by surprise? How did we get here? So I have a few thoughts about it. One that has to do with Israel internally is that I think the one thing, or one of the many things that Israel and Zionism did very well from the get-go, is that from the beginning, we knew how to be both Sparta and Athens. We knew that we had to be a mobilized society, ready to sacrifice. We understood what we were up against, certainly since the 1920s. And we understood that we would have to be mobilized for our defense, but at the same time, we built universities and uh, revived an ancient language and created a vibrant, creative democracy. And I think that was a remarkable thing about Israel. And then I think we got a little too addicted to being Athens. And I think in that sense, Israel also reflected what was happening to the Jewish world here. We began to think of the threat in theoretical terms. There was no visceral sense of a threat. And then we just got more addicted to the fact that life in Israel was very good. And, and I think our challenge going forward will be, well, we're clearly going to have to be much more Sparta than we were for a while. But we'll need to continue being Athens and have museums and world-class universities and great books and to be a vibrant society. Um, it's very funny, someone wrote on Twitter and once said, he said, when I see my friends in Israel going to a pub, going to a restaurant, I'm thinking, good, it's important. You know, a little bit of routine, normalcy, that's important. When I see my friends abroad going to a pub, I'm thinking, you know, like, how dare you? Um, 
So uh, we, we will have to learn how to have this balance. In terms of more broadly, October 7th in many ways was decades in the making. On the Palestinian side, Palestinians have remained for a century consistently devoted to the idea that there should not be a Jewish state. And um, in the book, The War of Return, as you know, uh, one of the things that I prided myself is that we gave Palestinians the respect of taking them at their word. And um, there was this word I invented called Westplaining, when Western journalists and diplomats explain away what Palestinians clearly say. Again, to the credit of Palestinians, they have said for a century what their intentions were, whenever they could act on it, they did. Um, and unfortunately, too many, including in the West, have been complicit in indulging that and sustaining that and even fueling that and often being blind to that. That's one aspect that has been decades in the making. When we were willing to accept that all these discussions, Israel's apartheid, Israel's racism, Zionism is racism, Israel's committing genocide, all that, we often made the mistake of engaging in these as if these were good faith discussions about Israeli policy and be like, no, look, there's Arabs in the Supreme Court. And we would engage in those discussions rather than understanding them for what they were, which was the long-term process of creating a global mental mindset that at the critical moment, and we saw it on October 7th, would basically respond with saying they had it coming because Israel is so evil and Zionism is so evil that anything that is done to them is clearly deserved and even serves the good of humanity because Israel is evil. So we're seeing a lot of things that have been decades in the making essentially erupt. Mm -hmm. David, I don't know if you wanna add anything to the question of how we got here but also I'd like to ask you, where do you think we're going in the next immediate period of time? What is the war gonna look like? What is the end game? What do you think the Israeli objective is? And when can it be declared that the objective has been achieved? Well, the objectives have been articulated, I think, repeatedly and pretty clearly, which is to remove Hamas's capability to A, make war, and B, govern Gaza. Do, do you think that's achievable? Because we, 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 we hear a lot of skepticism out here by analysts in the West that Hamas is an idea, you, you can never extinguish uh, an idea, and if it's not Hamas, then somebody even worse will so, come so around in a few years. I have years. really very minimal patience at this point for what to me sounds like essentially ad advocating the Hamas position through filtered language in the West. They made the attack and instantly called for a humanitarian ceasefire. And around the world, we suddenly hear all these experts saying that achieving the goals you've set out is either impossible or undesirable for A, B, C, D, E, F, G reasons. But you're talking about a, a, um, a catastrophe and an assault it's not a terror attack that is as powerful to Israel as, as Pearl Harbor, as powerful to Israelis 
as 9-11. And the objectives we've set out are much, much smaller than destroying the Nazis and the Japanese or destroying Al-Qaeda on the other side of the planet. These are very carefully delineated objectives with very careful plans. And it is an operational question with operational answers. And we're seeing it today. We're seeing, you know, you decimate the command structure. You decimate the weapons and capability of manufacturing the weapons. There will be a temporary period of needing to sit there for quite some time to make sure the tunnels are all gone. And that, the, that some number of layers of leadership are dead. And really interesting questions as to what comes next. I don't think that America devised the Marshall Plan until 1947. I don't think it's necessary for Israel to have already lined up a well-developed plan of what exactly comes next. But I think the fundamental principle that says that organization, you know, you can't destroy an idea. Well, you know what? You can add additional ideas, such as uh, this is what happens when you invade Israel and teach your grandchildren, such as there are alternatives to Hamas. There are alternatives to absolute rejectionism. There really are. I mean, what did Germany and Japan have to go through under allied occupation for a long time to be able to create societies that were willing to live in peace with the United States? I don't know if you've had an opportunity to assess and evaluate Western media coverage and how that might have changed over the last week since October 7th. How do you think we're doing? <laughs> um, we have a very clear goal, and that is not to make the world like us. It's to make our people safe again, to deter at attacks again. And to the extent that the media matters, it matters only in those places that influence that question. For example, every single time Israel is forced into a war, there's this big clock that starts ticking out in sort of diplomacy land, uh, it's particularly in Washington, as to how much time do we have Western support until they start saying, okay, that's enough. And it has nothing to do with our operational goals. In this case, we had a really tremendous degree of instinctive, instantaneous support from the United States. I, I personally did not imagine two aircraft carriers suddenly appearing in the pool outback. And when President Biden came and he spoke, that sent a very powerful signal, which was already in the works for European leaders. So we were given more time than usual. Um, my belief is that you can see that time running out over the course of coverage. You can see that the media which five minutes ago was taken for a ride about the hospital bombing, five minutes later continues to believe Hamas numbers, Hamas descriptions, Gaza authorities as if that's not Hamas, or the Palestinian health ministry in Gaza as if that's not Hamas. This is a totalitarian authoritarian regime that is controlling all messaging coming out of Gaza. Uh, and the media continues to believe it because it helps push a certain narrative that ends up putting a lot of pressure on Israel. So that, is, that clock is ticking and we see it changing over time. But I want to add one other thing about media coverage. When I landed, after two weeks of, of war, I was expecting something that I not described, which is to arrive in a country where nobody cares about my conflict except perhaps the Jews. Nobody cares about the hell I've been going through. And I kind of braced myself for that. 
And instead, I turn on TV in the hotel room. CNN, MSNBC, and Fox are all showing lots and lots of stories about the hell I'd just been going through for the last two weeks and about, and my country had been going through. Except there was one important difference, which was that all of the stories on American TV news were about the horror, the suffering, the families of the, the kidnapped and the bereaved families. In Israel, in the same period, I would say about 20 to 25% of the stories being shown on TV news were also about heroism, about people who dropped everything and saved their grandkids. <laughs> you know, this Arab-Israeli bus driver who went back and forth and back and forth into the, the hell of the, of the festival to help people escape. It was something that Israelis needed to hear um, because we've always, always, always merged together Holocaust and heroism. Even our Holocaust day is called Yom Hazikaron La Shoah Ve La Remembrance Day of Holocaust and Heroism. And Holocaust Day ceremonies always include reference to the partisans and the ghetto uprisings and, and everybody who fought back. And for a country that was about to mobilize and go to war, you know, for decades I've been hearing people in diaspora say, oh, that's just weird Israeli machismo. Why can't you just let the Holocaust be the Holocaust? And, and at this moment, at this point in time, I think Israelis really, really needed to hear that. And it's a very fascinating distinction. So there was an operation against an installation in a place called Jabalia, which was described as a refugee camp. How are there still refugee camps for Palestinian refugees in Gaza 75 years later? Funny you should ask. Um, <laughs> One of the things that we see in general throughout is the complete deformation of words uh, in the Israeli context that they mean nothing, like genocide means nothing, apartheid means nothing, occupation means nothing. Everything gets distorted in order to put it in a context that's against Israel and Zionism, and refugee is the same thing. And this is, of course, goes to the core issues. Why are two-thirds of the people in Gaza registered as refugees from a war that ended seven decades ago? How are there neighborhoods that are called refugee camps in Gaza that are not? They're not refugee and they're not camps. They're buildings, they're neighborhoods. And of course, the short answer is, unlike all other refugees from wars in the 40s and 50s and 60s when empires collapsed and new states emerged and borders were drawn and tens of millions of people fled or were expelled or were forced across borders, the message to all refugees in the world, and some of them may be your grandparents or parents, was it's tough, it's tragic, Move on. And the message was that because it was understood that if this were not the message, the world will be in perpetual war. But one people was allowed an exception. The Arab refugees from the War of 1948, later to be known as the Palestinians, 
they were allowed to essentially not be part of this message of tragic, tough, move on. And they were kept, uh, by the way, as a result of their desire, no one forced them, in this perpetual situation of generation after generation, we're now down into the fifth generation, to claim that they are refugees from the war. And the reason is that we think of the war as having ended more than seven decades ago. As far as they're concerned, the war is an open case. And they're looking at the War of 1948, and they're saying, okay, in 1948, we failed to achieve our objective of the Jews not having a state, but that was temporary. And what you have is, in all the decades since, an effort to essentially keep winning that war through a series of military invasions and economic boycotts and international condemnations and mobilization of support and the perpetuation of this idea that even though you were born in Gaza, okay, we can all agree that Gaza is Palestine. So you were born in Palestine. You were never displaced by war. Your parents were born in Gaza. Your grandparents were born in Gaza. By now, your great-grandparents were born in Gaza. And yet, you're registered as a refugee from Palestine. You live in a place that, even though it's a neighborhood with buildings, is called a refugee camp. And this is how we understand Gaza, because we have two-thirds of the people who are living there who are being told day in, day out, for decades, that Gaza is not their home, and that it will never be their home, and that they shouldn't think of it as their home, and they shouldn't invest in it as their home, because their real home is from the river to the sea. It's the Palestine that they want to liberate. It's the, the place beyond the borders, beyond the fence that they broke through. So if you are raising people generation after generation with the idea that their most noble cause in life is to take back Palestine, then that's what you get. And this is why billions can be placed in Gaza and nothing will improve. I have by now op-eds on op-eds, essays on essays that keep on saying, don't give money to the reconstruction of Gaza until the idea changes. And in this, I do agree with those who say, the problem is with the idea. Hamas are the trained murderers who have rose up to realize, to liberate Palestine. But they did that with the knowledge that they're operating in the name of an idea that is shared by their people. And Hamas is merely the newest reincarnation of that. But because this is an idea that has been building over decades, then murderers of Jews in the land operated for decades with that idea. And they were called Fatah or the DFLP or Hamas or Jihad. But they all came from the same ideological background. And I would always tell people, look, if you're going to give billions of aid to Gaza, but the people of Gaza, and I'm sorry to say, there's no exceptions, the people of Gaza 
believe that Gaza is a launch pad to take back Palestine, then every dollar you put into Gaza, every pound of cement you send into Gaza, is going to be used to ensure that Gaza is the most effective war machine to take back Palestine. And unless the idea changes, then nothing else will work. And it's not a coincidence that the two places where this perpetual refugee culture is the strongest, which is Gaza and Lebanon, this is where you have the highest percentage of people registered as refugees, people who are living in so-called refugee camps, those are also the most violent places. Because what these places do is raise generation after generation that will be recruited to whatever terrorist organization exists at the moment for the noble ideal of liberating Palestine. And until that idea changes, nothing will change. And the day that from the river to the sea will evoke the same social response as Heil Hitler, we will have taken a massive step towards peace. Because that means that we have finally understood what is the ideology that we're up against. You know, the rhetoric here in the West, in, in every way, including on the political level, not only the media, is the Palestinians are held hostage by their leadership, which is fanatical and so on. And you seem to be suggesting that there is essential unity amongst the Palestinian population that rejects coexistence. Is that, is that your view? It's not my view, it's the Palestinian view. And, and, I, and I can tell you this, um, it's not fun to be me in the sense of like, I'm not, for years I've been, this is right, this is what I'm doing for years now, giving those talks, writing about this. It's not fun. I used to work with Shimon Paris. I want to be the butterfly and unicorn person. I want to be the person who talks about how we can all live and it'll be nice. And I'm not enjoying like giving those talks and I appear harsh and depressing and really not fun. Um, and I'm sitting in front of students and I give, you know, I explain this, and I, I see them, I see as I speak, they begin to like rebel, and, and, the, and there's always the question. You're exaggerating. You're painting a broad brush. Uh, there must be different Palestinian voices, just as there's different voices in Israel, there's extremists in Israel, then there's different voices among Palestinians. And my answer is the same. By making this very broad claim, I have made it so easy to take me down. I've made it so easy to refute me. Go, bring me a Palestinian who in their words, publicly, remember West Plaining? I don't accept anyone who told me, oh, someone told me, I know a Palestinian. I'm like, no. They need to say so publicly, it could be a tweet, it could be a post, it could be an op-ed, in their own words, and the words need to be as follows. They can't be, I want peace, or we all should live together. No. Again, when I worked with Paris, there was this idea of, um, especially in Oslo, of constructive ambiguity, right? Let's just fudge the issues, and as long as we sign something, trust will be built and all that. 
we know that it's been destructive ambiguity. So I've become a proponent of constructive specificity. We need to be very clear. And that's what a Palestinian needs to say. I, a Palestinian, recognize the equal right of the Jewish people as a people, as a nation, to self-determination in their ancient homeland. And I understand the implications that it means that we, the Palestinians, can build a state next to the Jewish state of Israel, but not instead of it. It means that I understand that we possess no right of return into the sovereign state of Israel and that we are not refugees. And I tell them, bring me. Nobody comes back. And believe me, I know it's a depressing message, but um, I look for those voices. And when there's such a voice, I amplify. There's about one, two, they're on the margins of Palestinian society. The moment we'll begin to have a critical mass of them, then we will have leaders. But the comforting delusion that we've told ourselves, these are a peace-loving people who were hijacked by evil aliens who just came out of nowhere with these crazy ideas. When the Secretary General of the UN said that October 7th did not happen in a vacuum, I was like, hell yeah, of course it didn't happen in a vacuum. It's just not anything of the things you talked about. In fact, your organization has done a lot to contribute to what happened on October 7th, UNRWA not being the least of them. I mean, this is what it means to be a Palestinian. To be a Palestinian means to believe in the liberation of Palestine from the river to the sea. It's the most basic identity. And that's what needs to change if we are ever going to have a different reality. And looking back at uh, the Oslo process, you believe that that was their mindsets and the Israelis just didn't want to hear that. Yes, and uh, because we, we heard them say things like two states. A lot of the issues that we have in this conflict is that we project on the Palestinians who we are. So we thought that what they really want is a state, that given the opportunity, they'll build a state. We really couldn't fathom how deep their commitment was primarily to the Jews not having a state. Those of you who, who read me know that one of my favorite quotes is I, as I was researching the War of Return is um, Ernst Bevin, the British foreign minister after World War II. If you know anything about him, he was not our friend. Um, and he goes to the British Parliament in February 1947. This is February 1947. There's no state of Israel, there's no refugees, uh, there's no occupation, there's no settlements, all the things that we're told are the cause, are the problem, the things that the Secretary General said were the problems. This is February 1947, and he says the following. He says, His Majesty's government has come to the conclusion that the conflict in the land is irreconcilable. Irreconcilable in February 47. Why? He says, look, there's two groups in the land, Jews and Arabs, so there was no question about who the two groups are. And he says, each one of them has a top priority, a thing they care about more than anything. For the Jews, the top priority is to establish a state. The Jews want a state. For the Arabs, the top priority, he says, and listen to the phrasing, is for the Jews not to have a state in any part of the land. 
He's not saying the Jews want a state, the Arabs want a state, we're not really sure where to draw the border, UN, please help us. He says as a matter of top priority, the Jews want a state and the Arabs want the Jews not to have a state. Now in the 90s, we could believe that the Palestinians were ready to let go of from the river to the sea in order to have an actual state. Again, we thought they were like the Zionists, they'll take half of it as long as they get a state. But now that we know that they've walked away from so many opportunities, we really can judge them not just by their words, but by their actions. That every time they had an opportunity to have their own state in part of the land, but the price of that, that the Jews will also have a state in the other part, at least today, and Bevan got it right, that's not what they wanted, and it was a too high a price to pay. I want to bring you to where we are here in the United States now. Jews are preoccupied with this explosion of anti-Semitism. Uh, and you mentioned to me in one of our previous conversations that you believe that this war is not only a war on Israel, but it's a war on Judaism and on Jews worldwide. Yeah. So could you um, expand on that? What sure. do you mean by that? And, and I will, what I have to say on the subject is, I don't think, it, I don't know whether or not it is possible to kill an idea. Um, I don't know whether Nazism as an idea was ever killed. Racism in the United States was certainly not killed. But I do know that it's possible to radically disempower an idea. It's possible to radically disincentivize an idea. And we saw it with Nazism. In Europe, it's illegal to deny the Holocaust for, in many countries. We saw it in the United States with the Civil Rights Act and many things that have happened since then in which overt practices of racism that directly hurt African Americans and Jews, by the way, were illegalized and shamed and punished. To radically disempower an idea requires grappling with its power that it, that it contains. Now, this is where Hamas is connected to all the anti-Semitic movements that you see. When you have any ideology that combines an infinite grievance with an infinite license, meaning Anything that I do to rectify my grievance is inherently justified. That all of your ideas of principles and morals, all of those ideas have been imposed to put us down. And anything we do to, to fight that is inherently just and good. Then you are touching on radical grievance plus radical license equals radical evil. And I think it's incredibly important to understand that the war is not a war against Israel, primarily. It is a war against the Jewish people everywhere. And that's why when Hamas does something, the anti-Semites here rejoice, okay? Because they see the oppressed, grievance people taking it to the man, taking out the Jew, the powerful, the mysterious, all-powerful Jew. And I really do believe that the forces that we're facing here in the anti-Semitic waves 
are every bit as dangerous inherently, but they're just much, much less powerful. But what you're seeing in Gaza right now is what happens when you let it get empowered. The answer for Jews is not to look at this as a pogrom, because what's a pogrom? Inherently, the word suggests helplessness. It's something that we have to either flee or endure. But rather to look at it as a war. A war suggests mobilization. A war suggests resources and thinking and creativity in how to fight back. What we need, and it's starting to happen, I'm seeing it already start to happen in foundations and philanthropies, we need a mobilization for the diaspora. Because the war's coming. As soon as Israel's done in Gaza, these forces are going to be looking for a more vulnerable target. And they're going to find it right here. And we need to prepare ourselves mentally and tactically and strategically for what that's going to look like and how we're going to fight back and even, allow myself to say, take the fight to the enemy. Because that's part of waging war as well. I'd like to ask both of you, and Inad, I know you're a, an expert on American campuses, but David, let me ask you first, how do you explain the eruption of what we're seeing on American campuses? And how do you explain that even university presidents, heads of department, moralists, philosophers, even before Israel responded, couldn't condemn the atrocities, let alone name the terrorists? How do you explain that? There's a big underlying question that you're asking that I'm actually going to ask a not to answer, which is why is there anti-Semitism in the world? Why isn't this stuff going away? And it's a really important question. Um, but most of what I think on the subject, I learned from Inat, so I'd rather have her answer the question. Um, but on a more, you know, 50-year to, to now level, there are a couple of things happening. One is that throughout the Intifada, I noticed a weird thing. Every time there was a major terror attack, there were immediately instant demonstrations by Palestinians. It, it was just like a, a, a flare that went up that said, let's just riot over and over and over again, which is very strange because, again, it was before any retaliation, before it wasn't a response to Israel's response. It was a response to the attack itself. And it was, on the one hand, an instinctive celebration. We stuck it to the man. We did it. We killed Jews. And they don't say Israelis. They say we killed Jews. Um, and secondly, it was the changing of the subject. It just became this natural, automatic thing, just like, let's, let's get everybody looking at the riots, and maybe, the, maybe there'll be, you know, we'll, we'll lose some people and have more spectacle to even add on to the spectacle of the terror attack itself. And when I saw, started seeing it around the world after this attack, I said, this is, amazing. this is exactly the same thing. Because as you say, it happened before Israel began re responding. The ideology of grievance plus license equals evil was already there. And the natural response when you are in that world is to celebrate, to celebrate the achievements of Hamas. So then you have the question of the university presidents and all these people who, first of all, just begin with the fact that they're scared to death. Okay, they're in charge of institutions that suddenly have potentially extremely violent, coordinated, massive riots, potential riots going on. And, and all university presidents want 
is to show their donors that they've got things under control. <laughs> so I, that disappointed but didn't surprise me. On a deeper level, and, and this is where, you know, if I can quote um, one of the great essays in this book is by Isabella Tabarovsky, who is a scholar of um, the Soviet influence on global anti-Semitism today. So I recently heard Isabella give a talk. It was the same night as Cooper Union uh, freaked out, so they were all there and nobody came to CUNY to protest Isabella, and she was a little disappointed, I guess. No, just kidding, not really. Um, but she gave a talk where she showed a slide, a photograph of pamphlets in English produced by the Soviet Union and printed by the millions of copies and disseminated on American campuses in early 1970s. What were their titles? Israel is apartheid. Zionism is racism. Zionism is colonialism. Okay. That was going on 50 years ago. And guess what? Those students today are the professors emeritus at all of these universities. And that's only one piece of the puzzle. Beginning with the Six-Day War and with the utter collapse and the utter failure of Soviet client states in the Middle East to win that war, the Soviets turned on Israel as what they saw as a vulnerable point in the West's uh, fight against in the Cold War. And they began in any number of languages throughout countries to influence the elite on campuses and the intellectual discourse. And they paid people. A lot of the people who, who became these great scholars were paid by the KGB. <laughs> I don't want to oversimplify it. You have other intellectual movements that came in. Um, but this is kind of what we're now seeing is an eruption of half a century of deliberate constructed efforts to attack Israel at the level of ideas. But to go further back than that, to centuries and, and millennia, we need to hear from Inat. Like uh, David says, and really uh, Isabella is the scholar on this issue, is that this is the greatest legacy of the Soviet Union in the West today. The Soviet Union is defunct, but this has remained. And the Soviet Union, has been in the business of giving respectability to Jew hatred for quite some time now. Tsarist Russia, I mean, they created the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Now today, anyone can publish a book, but more than 100 years ago, a book was a sign of this is serious. This is respectable. It's not a coincidence that the Protocols is still one of the most published books today. Because what the Russians did is they took all these libels and conspiracies and gave them the respectability of a book. I read it in a book, therefore it must be true. Now, after World War II, the Soviets, they can no longer be overtly anti-Semitic. First of all, earlier they brought down Tsarist Russia, so of course they're against Tsarist anti-Semitism, but especially after World War II, they just defeated the Nazis. You don't get to be more anti-anti-Semitic than defeating the Nazis, right? So they've created this respectable replacement called anti-Zionism. And if the Protocols was a book, anti-Zionism was an entire academic endeavor. 
where people created cross-references, and we see it now in academia. At one point, everyone is referencing each other that begins to look respectable and serious, and people were getting PhDs in that. Abu Mazen, the head of the moderate Palestinians, has his PhD, essentially, in that branch. So they created From Moscow a, University. Yeah, and they created this whole respectable replacement for these ancient ideas in the form of anti-Zionism and very actively exported it to the European left and from there it went to the American and British left and that's what we're seeing here. So we need to understand what a powerful legacy it is. You know, I, every day that someone says Israel's apartheid, a Soviet angel flaps their wings and uh, <laughs> it's, that's, it's nothing new, but they feel as if they're saying something new. So first we need to understand that this is what it is. And once we understand that, then we understand this has a very, very long history. Um, I debated, I participated in some high profile debates a few years ago about whether anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, and I lost them all. And the reason was that the other side will parade out the Satmar Jew or the Natura Karta or the Jewish Voices for Peace who are neither Jews nor for peace. And they will say, see, you know, it's, we have nothing against Jews. So I realized that debating the issue in theory is they're going to be splitting hairs and it's a losing proposition. So then I said, you know what? Let's not discuss the theory. Yeah, you can always find me, the anti-Zionist Jew. Let's look at the practice. Let's look what happens to societies that have made anti-Zionism a central feature of who they are. Exhibit A, the Arab world. The Arab world also said that they have nothing against Jews. It's just about anti-Zionism. Yet remarkably, Within a decade of anti-Zionism becoming the defining feature of the Arab world, no Jews are left. And you know what good has it done them? What good has it done the Palestinians to organize their entire identity and worldview and society around anti-Zionism? Exhibit B, the Soviets, they made it very clear that it's not about the Jews. They don't even see Jews, and yet, as soon as the Jews could leave, they left because they knew to whom it meant. Jeremy Corbyn's Labor Party, he is the classic outcome of this Soviet training. He was such a committed anti-Zionist that the entire Labor Party became a hostile place for Jews and good for the Jews of Britain for standing up. And we're seeing it now on American campuses. I got my undergraduate degree at Harvard, but I must say this brand is going through very quick deterioration. This is what happens to societies and organizations that make anti-Zionism a central feature. First, it never ends well for Jews. The environment always turns hostile to Jewish life. However much they protest that it's not about Jews, that is always the practical outcome, but also it doesn't end well for those societies. They collapse onto themselves. Now, why these ideas are so old and ancient? Uh, at the end of the day, fundamentally, it has to do with the fact, uh, and this I highly recommend a book by the historian Tom Holland, not Spiderman. Uh, the historian, uh, it's called Dominion, about how Christianity made the West. 
He really shows how the West remains very much secularized Christianity. And it continues a secularized version of the idea ultimately that when Christianity emerged, one of the things that it had to do was make it clear that the Jews were wrong because they now superseded it. And this remains a very powerful idea. If you've seen recently those placards, keep the world clean with uh, the Star of David inside the trash bin, this is a classic. The idea that the collective Jew taints the world, that the collective Jew stands between the world and utopia is one of the most ancient ideas uh, in Christianity that became secularized into the West and the Soviet Union. We need to remember that they're also heirs to the same ideas. David, we're gonna give you the last word. Tell us about the book. It's a fantastic compilation. Some of the great Jewish thinkers are in here. <laughs> uh, um, and tell us why you think it's, uh, it was important when you came up with the idea and why it's still important. So we came up with the idea um, more than two years ago on the premise that Jewish life seems to be diverging between focusing on our groups whether they be denominational or political or others, or focusing on the world as a whole, the sub-peoplehood or the universal. And I heard so much talk about Jewish peoplehood, and I felt like maybe it would be possible to create, by example, a single volume that contained within it visions for the future of our people as a whole by writers from all across the spectrum, from ultra-Orthodox to secular, from younger influencers and veteran writers, politically left and right, and Israel diaspora, the US, but also other diasporas. And, we, and I was really amazed by the responses that we got, both from writers who jumped at the opportunity to participate, including some very big names, but also from many institutions that were really excited by this possibility. The slogan on the website was, imagine having the entire Jewish people over for dinner which isn't always necessarily a good thing, but it's an important thing. And so almost a sense of the big thanks, family Thanksgiving dinner where your cousin that you despise is there, and you don't talk to each other, but you're both there, because you have to be there, because we're one family. And I wanted to recreate this sort of vast, not on the things we agreed on, but rather on disagreement, this vast Talmudic collection that encapsulates us all and brings us all together to disagree together. That was the the vision. And then the war came. And what I realized as I began processing the, the demand for this book, despite all the horror, was that, that this is a moment of revelation. Alongside all the grief and alongside all the horror and the mobilization, there's also a moment of revelation in which both in Israel and in the diaspora, a lot of things we thought were true or not true, and we need to do some deep rethinking fast. Because as I said before, the war is coming here too, and it's already here as well. So there's an urgency and an importance to having conversations. Now, these essays were all written beforehand, but they were written so far beforehand that 
none of the essays in the book were obsolete. And the result is that you have a lot of essays that are kind of timeless, about beauty as a Jewish value, or, or about you know, why Tel Aviv is such a great capital for the Jewish people, all these kind of fun pieces. And you also have pieces that are unbelievably prescient, that are much more important now than when they were written, um, covering anti-Semitism, covering Jewish pride, covering Jewish heroism, covering critiques of our institutional and philanthropic world, all of which are suddenly really, really urgent. So here it is. <laughs> Here's the book. But, it, but it's not just a book. It's a new conversation that I think we as a people collectively must have because we as a people collectively are at war. So, first of all, congratulations on the book. It's called Jewish Priorities, 65 Proposals. When you buy it, you can email any of us and tell us what you thought about the book or the editing. Or you could just put a review on Amazon and tell the world. Put a review. Those reviews are important. Uh, I want to thank uh, Enat Wilf and David Chazoni for uh, being here and for all the contributions, the many, many contributions you make to uh, Jewish life. And for all of us, these are very difficult times, sad times, bitter times. We've seen worse in Jewish history. We shall overcome. In the meantime, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Amen. Amen. Thank you.